This morning we are in Acts chapter 14. We're going to start with verse 8. It was quite a few weeks ago when we left off with verse 7, but we're ready to get back going again on this. I uh, hope you can hear all hear me. If you need more volume, there's more there if it's, if it's necessary. So let's go to verses 8 through 10. I'm reading these from the New American Standard Bible. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Now, previous to Lystra, they were in Iconium. And if you remember, I know it's been quite a few weeks since I taught Sunday school, but there was a riot there and a tumult against the gospel, and they left. And so I have here, I'll go back to the slide, but first I want to show you this one. I have these slides that I bought a whole set that covers the book of Acts. So I want to use my fun uh, stuff that I have here. So here's a map that shows Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And so it'll give you an idea for the sort of train they had and where they went. And I got one more slide here that would be pertinent to uh, Lystra. And what we have here, I, I keep emphasizing this because I want everyone in the church to know the reliability of Scripture. Because the liberals foolishly try to claim that the Bible's really no different than any other religious book. It's just mythology and ideas or whatever. And that's just flat out false. The, if the Bible talks about the pl a place, the place exists. If the Bible talks about people who were in leadership and governors and whatever, they literally existed in history. And so here we have a picture of some stones that have inscriptions, and I'll read you what we, what we have here. <clears throat> the inscription on the left, it says, mentions Lystra and dates to the first century AD. So here you have contemporary proof that Lystra existed at the time when Luke claimed that's where they went. Okay. Um, the inscription on the right, it says, dates to AD 156 and mentions Derby. These date to 157 and were photographed at the Kona, which is Iconium Museum, and so on. So now, let me give you a little background about these places. Let me hear some material about Lystra from Dr. Schnabel. The city of Lystra, about 34 kilometers southwest of Iconium, was probably founded by Augustus in 25 BC a town that already existed at the site as a military colony with the name, and then it's in Latin. The city was called the sister Adelphi of Pisidian Antioch, perhaps because it was founded as a colony at the same time. The epithet Gemina suggests that the members of two legions were stationed in the colony, and there were veterans and so on. I won't give any more data. But suffice it to say that when it comes to history and geography, the Bible is historically accurate. And Luke in particular is very good at giving details that put things in real places, real time, with the real type of government they had at that time under the Roman 
Empire. It's also noteworthy that the Roman so-called Pax Romana made a system of government and the use of the Greek language and a system of travel that made it possible for the gospel to rapidly spread during the lifetime of the apostles. And what really was used to spread it often was persecution. They would start, they would go into a synagogue, preach the gospel. Some people would believe, more people would gather. There would be God-fearing Greeks. Then pretty soon the whole city heard. We saw that in the previous situation. And then jealousy would erupt and the Jews would try to start a riot, the ones that didn't believe, to get rid of the gospel. Or sometimes it would be Greeks, but there was always persecution. Excuse me. And then they go on to the next city. So God uses things that we don't like to spread the gospel. Is there an application to that in our day? I would say absolutely yes. The fact that Christianity in its native sense, meaning those who actually believe the gospel and preach the whole counsel of God, is hated and attacked by the culture that we live in. Furthermore, people that are supposed to be Christian and call themselves Christian are often sometimes some of the strongest persecutors of the gospel itself. And they uh, literally are falling all over each other to be known as open and welcoming to the wicked pagan culture around. They advertise it on signs, they speak about it, and then turn viciously against anyone who believes in the morality of the Bible or the truth of the gospel. And so I end up, frankly, doing a lot of writing and radio to counteract that trend of accommodation. Yes. Yeah. By the way, Eric, yeah. welcome to Sunday School. Well, thank you. <laughs> God bless you. It's the best week of the best day of the week. I'm glad to be back. It's, love, yeah, it's lovely to be back. A lot of prayers have gone up for you. Welcome, God brother. bless all of you for that. Thank you. Um, I, I just can't help but interjecting a comment. As you talk about that, I wanted to say, meanwhile, back in places like the real city of Izmir, which is what was once Smyrna, there are real Christians, not, not just in Izmir, but in all over the world, that are really being persecuted. And the mainstream churches are doing nothing and, of course, I don't know what you do. I, it's hard to know what to do to help the persecuted Christians, but we're supposed to love one another because we know the world hates us. And yet the churches in America, uh, I think we're falling far short. I, I, again, I don't know what exactly we should be doing, but there's so much persecution in, in the, uh, what we call the third world and other parts of the world. People that are born of God will rally to the cause of other people who are born of God. That I know. And a lot of it happens now not necessarily public on billboards, but through social media, email, books. I have people that I've been, that have contacted me from all over the world that are hungry for the truth. And if somebody gets out of darkness into light, which we've seen, I keep track of them, and I wait. If I don't hear from them for a while, I'll email. How are you doing? Have you found fellowship? Are you hanging in there with the grace of God and so on? So we can use the tools that are available to reach out to a lot of hurting people. Now back to our text, Acts 14, 8 through 10. So now to the next city, Lystra, we have a healing. Paul is the apostle on the scene here, and the man is healed, and this is a sign that's going to point people to the gospel. Now, one of the things I've been emphasizing as I've teached through Luke-Acts 
is the narrative unity of Luke Acts. Luke Acts is a two-volume work written by one author, Luke the physician, written in very uh, erudite Greek, and it's amazing in its consistency. And when something happens, it pays to look for echoes, reviews and previews. So it turns out that here we have an echo, and Luke is telling us things for a reason. So if you could turn with me to what this echoes, we'll look at Acts chapter 3, where we had Peter and John. And one thing that we'll find out is the unity of the gospel and that the same working of God that happened through Peter and John and those who were with Jesus during his earthly ministry is continuing to happen not only amongst Jews but amongst Gentiles. So Acts 3.1 Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Verse 2, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb, see the same idea, exact same phrase, lame from his mother's womb, was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful. Oh, not this again. Oh, man. Is it the update, Bob? Well, I thought we had this fixed. Now I can't see my notes. And Jessica must be doing music. Eric, could you read here? Absolutely. Read Acts yeah. 3. Now, this happened the last time I taught. This computer. I'm sorry, what, um, we left off at what verse, you guys? Um, does everybody know? Trying to do updates, and I don't want it to. Okay, I'll just start at the beginning then. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. Verse 7, it says, And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Thank you, Eric. Amen. Now, my computer's waking out again here. You want to hand me back my, the text of it? Same thing is happening again, Jessica. Yeah, no, and I was trying to do updates, and I thought we told it not to. It will work for a second, and then goes back to updates. If you got music to do, I. All right, now let's see here. Could somebody get me the printout of? My PowerPoint, because I, I can't see the one on my computer. Notice here the similarities. And if you really learn how Acts works, Luke does things on purpose. Okay? Now, what's the significance, do you think, of being lame from his mother's womb? What's the significance of that? It's been lifelong. Yeah, so... It, it, it means it's not always a lifelong. If you'd ever walked once in your life, are your muscles going to work? 
Are you going to be able to walk? You're not even going to have the muscles. There's, there's going to be nothing there but atrophy. So the point of laying from mother's womb is not only signifies the profundity of the miracle, um, it also tells us that this is a creative miracle and that everything that happened is a total miracle from God. Even the ability to walk. And um, we saw the same thing happen in, in the Gospel of John. Now we also know from, and this was in my notes that I had no access to. I think I'm going to bring another computer from now on when I do this. Uh, in somewhere in early in Luke, I think maybe Luke 2, there's a prophecy that when Messiah comes, the lame will walk. Maybe somebody can find that. Early in Luke, during the birth narrative part, see if somebody can find it. It's in my notes here, but Microsoft is intruding on my Sunday school class. Microsoft intrudes on everything, don't they? Did you find it? Anybody find it? Just look up lame if you have an exhaustive concordance. You find it? Well, you know, Bob, I remember that in Isaiah 35. One there, of the, go ahead and do that one. Sure, that's, I'll read that one. Somebody reading. else is looking at the Luke 2. This is Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. The promise of the Messiah when he comes on the scene of history, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And by the way, that's the response. Remember John the Baptist starts fearing because he's going to be put to death. Right. And he asks, are you the one who comes? In the name of the Lord, he sends that back to Jesus' disciples. Jesus says, tell them that the, the deaf hear, the blind see, and the lame, and the lame walk. walk. And he's quoting from that very thing. Yeah. And so then Isaiah prophesied this would happen. Yeah. Early in Luke, the idea of the lame being healed is introduced. At the beginning of the ministry in Jerusalem at the temple, the temple is the focus of Luke Acts early on. Luke has this travel narrative that goes all the way from Luke 9.51 until toward the end as Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem to be rejected. Okay, so then after the ascension, one of the first things that happens is a miracle of the healing of the lame in keeping with what we was predicted early in Luke, in keeping with what was predicted in Isaiah, and then <coughs> it happens with Peter and John. Now, why the miracles? This is important. Eric just highlighted this. And if you've been influenced by the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, then you'll see how they distort this. The point of the miracles um, is to prove that this messianic salvation that was prophesied by Isaiah has come on the scene of history and that Jesus is the Christ and that his apostles have his authority and speak for him. Now, the apostles, as Eric has really proven, and I wrote about this myself, are unique to the New Testament times. So here we have Peter and John carrying out a miracle that Messiah did. Now it's done by his apostles, showing that the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God, a Messiah, wasn't the end, but the beginning of the Christian ministry. I've installed and I've got your Wi-Fi off, so I can't download anything else. Smart girl. She turned off my Wi-Fi. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> All right. Well, you should. Is this the right one? 
We got it. Okay. All right. Thank you. Go do music. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Jesse. Some people have all the talent. Yeah. Um, so we have, um, well, Eric, you already got us. Luke 7.22. And he answered Zeb, go, said to them, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. So that's what I was looking for is Luke 7.22. It wasn't as early as I thought. So this is the beginning. So the, the, a lot of people are thinking wrongly both about the deliverances and the healings. And I get, I know that from all these emails I get. I did it again. All right. The computer's got serious problems. Anyhow. Uh, that's the end of this computer doing PowerPoint. I'll launch it every once in a while so I can see my notes. Um, let me make a statement as we get the, there's a hand over here. Um, here's, here's the misunderstanding that people have. That the point of the miracles is therapeutic only. They believe that deliverances are therapeutic and the healings are therapeutic meaning to relieve human suffering, which we're not denying that they did. But they think that's the point and that God's therapeutic purposes are no different now than they were then. And my claim is the key point is self, Messianic salvation, therapy or no therapy. If the layman receives Christ, he is healed from his sin, and he will have a glorified body. Eric, go in there and turn down number one to zero. Gotcha. <laughs> the computer's going crazy. The sound is going crazy. All right, go ahead, Paul. I was just going to complete a thought that you'd begun so well, that uh, just as a person was lame from birth, and then later, a person, I believe in the book of John, was blind from birth, just as we have been sinners since birth. The only way we could possibly not be there is to be drawn by God, just as in these healings, God himself did draw them. Uh, and I just wanted to make that thing, um, that the blind who is lame would not have had muscles. The person who is blind, uh, lame, wouldn't have muscles. The person who is blind wouldn't be able to recognize what they were seeing if they, were, if they did see. It was and a miracle. And so later yeah. he recognized Jesus. That is to say, it was not about physical birth, uh, physical uh, sight. It was about spiritual blindness. Amen. And so on and so forth. I just want to share that. The same goes with the resurrection of Lazarus. It's a sign of new life from the dead. So... What the Bible calls signs of the apostles, many are taking to be therapeutic. In other words, the main point is simply to relieve suffering in this life. And so therefore, they're saying, if we're not doing signs and wonders and so on, then we're not actually healing people and we're failing God. Even if we pray and, and obey, have the elders pray for the sick, and God does heal people. We're not saying if God heals somebody, I certainly have been healed significantly, miraculously, so is my mom for that matter. She's not here today. But uh, I'm not going around saying, see, we're the, we're, we're the real apostles. God's a loving, kind, merciful God, and he kept me here, so I'll keep preaching. Okay? With the demons, this is the one that really gets people. They think that the, the demonic deliverances in the acts are therapeutic. So people call me and email me and say, I have demons, I can't sleep, or this is happening, and they give me a list of symptoms. Are you able to get the demons out of me so that I'll be better off? And... Uh, the point is, well, you don't get it. What you need is to get out of their domain. 
Acts 26, 18. So the deliverances are signs that in Jesus, like a gathering or, or anyone you want to talk about, you don't have to be under Satan's domain. If you come to Christ, you will come out of the domain of Satan into the kingdom of God. And now rather than having exorcists trying to get demons out, you have Christ at the throne of grace and you take it all to him. And I've been trying to, I've been saying that for 25 years. Uh, I think I've gotten better at saying it, but people think, well, I'm afraid if I do that, I'll still have my symptoms. I'm going to go try to find an exorcist. What are they saying? I'd rather have symptom relief than to get out of the domain of Satan. Uh, Bob, we see examples of therapeutic healing, and yet the person remains in the domain of Satan. John 5. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, okay, uh, very interesting phenomena seen in John 5 where the guy's healed. And Jesus told him to repent unless something worse comes upon him. He goes after he's healed, the guy at the pool, he goes and turns Jesus into the, to the authorities. Why are you walking with your pallet on Sabbath? Well, the guy that healed me told me to do it. He didn't even know who he was. He didn't care about serving Christ. So he said, okay. I mean, and then Jesus tells, tells him to beware of something worse come upon him. So the therapy didn't solve the guy's problem, even though he was miraculously healed. He had a bad attitude. Yeah, and that, that shows the point that you're making, that it's not the therapeutic uh, uh, no. outcome. John 5 shows that. So this isn't about therapy. The therapy is re remarkable and important, but it points to messianic salvation. Now, here's a statement I want to make. Notice that Paul commanded him to do what he was naturally incapable of doing. This is analogous to the command to repent and believe the gospel. Yes, that brings us back to what Eric's been teaching. Here is an important point. I, I see Lazarus being like that and this guy, okay? It's analogous to the universal call of the gospel. Here's how. All right, I got my point off that slide. I'll wait for later. <clears throat> I knew I had something on my nose that was good. Listen, we recently were sent a book where they, were, they claimed that you're only, if God commands something, then that proves that the person has the ability to do it. That's the main claim. Eric's been refuting that for weeks now. God will never command something that man doesn't have the ability to do. Charles Finney taught that. Not everybody knows this, but Charles Finney was a Pelagian, and he was so man-centered that his doctrine was even more man-centered than Rome and the Council of Trent. Even Rome rejects Pelagianism. But Charles Finney taught it. Human ability, human ability, human ability. Finney's axiom was God will never command anyone to do what they're unable to do. Well, God just did it right here. Sitting, no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, never walked. He was listening to Paul. When he fixed his gaze on him and seen that he had faith to be made well, that's Paul as a prophet and apostle. He says, stand upright on your feet. He commanded him to do what he had no ability to do. So Finney was a liar and a heretic. And we have proof that his axiom is wrong. Because there, God is commanding through his apostle for man to do what he had no ability to do. 
And when the universal call of the gospel goes out and we say, we preach Christ, who he is, his incarnation, his preexistence, his divine attributes, fully human, fully God, his prediction of his own death, burial, resurrection, his resurrection, his ascension. We preach Christ and we tell people that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins and he's commanding all men, meaning human beings everywhere to repent. That, that is the universal call and we preach that almost every Sunday. Okay. And whenever that happens, when Eric does it or anybody else does it, what is happening is that we're commanding people to do what they have no ability to do. I'm going to let that sink in. No one can come to me unless it's granted from God. Do you think man has the innate ability to obey God? No. Do you think sinners want to be serving Christ? What if he just explained to a rebellious sinner that I'm going to tell you about Christ, but let me warn you what's going to happen if you believe me. You're going to be going to church you're going to be happy to hear the moral law of God. You're going to lose all your old frat buddies or whoever was rejoicing in sin. All the evil you're doing, you're going to be asking God to get it out of your life. And you'll be happy to hang out with the very people you hate now. Those people. So I want to warn you ahead of time. Now here's what you got to do for that to happen. How many of them would say, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to be a Christian? That wouldn't have worked on me. <clears throat> but the universal call, when it goes to the ears of what we later find out are the elect, it's very much like Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. Or Paul saying to the lame man, stand up on your feet and walk. Or the blind, see. We're saying to the lost, repent, quit serving Satan, sin, and self, turn to Christ, believe the gospel for the forgiveness of sins, and serve Christ. And if somebody does it, the light that comes in, the, as Luther said, the thunderbolt from heaven. I love that term. The thunderbolt from heaven is very much like Lazarus getting out of that grave. The grave clothes fall off. Very much like the layman leaping with joy. Very much like the rebellious Paul who was breathing out threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, very much like all those things, then the light comes on for those who believe and they get out of Satan's domain and they do go forth, they do follow him, they do rejoice, and they do leap for joy. I would say that that's a, that was a big problem with the Jews in the Old Testament because we see a lot of examples of the impetus of God doing things that man was incapable of, such as, uh, you know, go attack those giants. Okay, well, on their own, they couldn't have done it. They could only have done it through, with, with God's help. The walls of Jericho falling down. Well, marching around the walls for seven days and then shouting uh, isn't going to bring walls down without God. Right. Why did it happen? Because of the promise of God. And so don't believe Finney. I mean, it's an embarrassment to America 
that a heretic like Finney is considered one of our great evangelists. He didn't evangelize. He told people about the power of man. I wrote an article in seminary exposing, it was a seminary paper exposing Finney as a full-blown Pelagian heretic, and I got an A on it because the, the church history professor thought I'd, be, I'd prove my point. Here's the points that Pelagius promoted. Here's the points that Finney promoted. Would you get an A today? <laughs> no. <laughs> because the guy retired who was the teacher, and the guy who took his place is a, uh, one of these... Armstrong, Chris yeah, Armstrong. Yeah, yeah, he was promoting icons and yeah, emergent, emergent stuff. Now the guy's emergent who, who took over from the guy who retired. Rich. Yeah, Plagian, yeah, we can talk about Plagian, but we really don't have to talk any further past what is going on in the evangelical church at large in America, or maybe even the world. I mean, the essence of what you're saying flies in the face of pretty much most every church in America, which is, hey, let's make this thing more comfortable for people so we can get more people in. Let's have whatever, rock and roll and a light show to get people through the doors and build this church. But this is exactly the opposite of what you're talking about, meaning that true Christianity flies in the face of every fiber of my body, every fiber of my flesh, right. which, is, which is antithetical to what I want or what I think what I want, what I feel. Yeah, you're right, Rich. You know, if, and Luke is very purposeful. You've got to appreciate the brilliance of Luke Acts. Even if somebody wasn't a Christian, they'd have to appreciate it for the literary value of something written so many millennia ago. Amazing writing. But Paul's conversion sits right there as a center point. So you had Peter and John and the healing of the man lame from birth earlier in Acts chapter 3. In between, you have the martyrdom of Stephen and then Paul, Saul of Tarsus, is violent and outraged at Christianity. And once the Christians imprisoned, threats of slaughter. And when he is confronted by the resurrected Christ, who says, why are you persecuting me? Everything Paul believed, everything he stood for, everything he was pushing for, everything he was demanding, was stopped in his tracks, dead in his tracks. And he's facing the one whose followers he wanted dead. And Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And this man converted, now wants everything that he used to hate. Oh, yes. That's exactly that. And Luke has that right there between the ministry at the temple, which was the place of rejection of Messiah, to at the end, Paul is rejected at the temple in Acts 21. The temple rejects it. The temple rejects it. He ends up in Rome. This guy has changed. Dear ones, when we preach the gospel, every single time we do, we're commanding people to do what they're incapable of doing. But we don't know. We're not Jesus and we're not Paul. Paul knew this guy as an apostle had faith to be healed. Jesus knew Lazarus was going to come out of that grave because he's the Lord over the grave. But we don't. But we know what the universal call is. And if we say... Repent. Here's Christ. Here's who he is. Here's what he did. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is granted. Somebody is the lame person. Somebody is Saul of Tarsus. Somebody is Lazarus. Somebody hears it like a thunderbolt from heaven. It comes to life.
and gladly repents and gladly serves Christ. Paul gladly went and waited. He was blind, which is an interesting sign, but then he ended up waiting for an ordinary Christian to come and pray for him who didn't want to do it because he had heard about him. This guy's dangerous. You want me to pray for him? Yep. He's one of us. Really? Yeah, he's one of us. Wow. <laughs> and he received his sight, and God used him. So for, to those Pelagians, Phineites, and just ordinary Armenians, you're wrong if you say God won't command what humans are incapable of doing. Because every single command is predicated on the idea that only God can change people. When Jesus said, be perfect as I am perfect, he's commanding what man can't do. When Paul said that everyone who's of the law is cursed, he cited a verse that said, cursed is he who does not abide in the law to do everything that's taught. Galatians 3. Well, how does that mean they're cursed? Because they don't have the ability to do it. The law shows us we need Christ. So this, I say, to reinforce what Eric taught us. Human inability is presumed. That's why it says in Jeremiah, cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his trust. Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the man who trusts in God, whose trust is in the Lord. And so we should not draw back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God. We should not demur from preaching the moral law of God, knowing that only God could ever change somebody that, so that they would do it. But he does. He does enable us. And ultimately, there's a resurrection from the dead. Now, let's see if we got one more shot with this thing. Nope. See my notes here? Okay, so we had, uh, he leaped up and began to walk. So this is a miracle. Verses 11 and 12. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lachaeonian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was chief speaker. So here we have, um, by the way, I have some scholarly material on this. It's not unusual for the main language, which was Greek, to not mean there weren't still dialects in places like Lyconia. Okay, so they still had their own dialect, too. When I was a kid down in Iowa, there were people that still could speak to each other in Dutch. Okay, English, they all do English, but when they really get mad or something, they start talking Dutch. <laughs> because a lot, a lot of the people around Sheldon came from Holland. There was a guy I worked with, and when he starts swearing, you know, he's swearing Dutch. That's why some people, the only thing they know in another language is the swear words. It's not good. <laughs> Anyhow, so that was the thing going on. They had their own little dialect, even though Paul was preaching in Greek. And uh, they thought the gods became like men. Now, this idea, okay, they were believing ideas that had a semblance that goes all the way back to the flood, all right? This idea that part of the divine council that included evil beings, we read about that in Genesis 6, that idea that the gods would occasionally come down, some of them evil beings, by the way, was there because it had actually happened in history. It was part of their collective memory that was carried forward. And so they thought that that was going on right here. 
they wouldn't say they believed it, they were polytheistic. But that's not what happened. This was proof that Messiah was who he claimed to be. So they started naming the gods that they believed had come down at some point. So Paul says in Romans 1.14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. So Paul was preaching to barbarians. They weren't cultured. They didn't have the Stoic philosophy, for example, that the Greeks would have. I think I have something on this here. Let me quote this Dr. Schnabel on, on this matter. He says this, in Greco-Roman texts, as well as in Jewish literature, the stare and the loud voice are indicators of the action or presence of the gods or God who mingle with human beings. As I said, this was not an idea that was they'd never heard of. Second, says Schnabel, Paul perceives the man has faith to be saved. In the context of the description of the lame man's illness and Luke's earlier accounts of the healing of lame men and other miracles, the man's hope to be saved should be understood in terms of an expectation to be cured. Since Luke's readers, such Nabal, know that Paul's message connects faith with Jesus the Savior, with forgiveness of sins, and with eternal life, that would be Luke 4, 13, 12, 39, 48. The faith of the layman probably includes all of these, not only to be healed, but to be saved. Third, says Schnabel, Paul addresses him in a loud voice, which is appropriate for the following command. He commands him to do what he cannot do by himself, never having stood on his feet without people supporting him. Paul knows supernaturally that God will heal this lame man. Thus, he issues the command that God will do what he does. Now, let me translate that to what Rich was talking about in just contemporary church history. False theology grounded in human ability is why we have the seeker movement. Okay? Because this came from Fuller Seminary. I've written articles about this. I researched it back in the 90s. Most of the false teaching that has gone throughout evangelicalism started at Fuller Seminary. Their church growth theory and also C. Peter Wagner with his new apostolic reformation. Uh, Mr. Wagner is no longer on the scene of history. He's an older man when he did this stuff. Now, the idea was that you need to give people a version of Christianity that appeals to them as they are now. You start with the intended audience. You don't start with Christ. You don't start with the gospel. You don't start with repentance. You don't start with forgiveness of sins. You start with the audience. And so many times, they actually, they, I had to sit in classes that were teaching this, okay? And so I know how it works, because I had to take the class to get a degree. I sat there in class and refuted the professor to the point where he banged his head on a chalkboard, getting <laughs> sick of me. But do this, do this, do this. So they literally go to a marketing survey of the, the building becomes the focus, and then what you do in the building and who lives around the building. And so then you do a marketing survey, and you would actually ask people, if you were go to go to church, what would you like to see in church? Sort of a focus group sort of thing. And then when they find out what the religious consumers are looking for, they design a version, some kind of a Christian version of what it is they're looking for. We want something for our children. We want, to, we want relevant music. We, want, we don't want to feel guilty. 
oh yeah, we don't want to go to church to feel guilty. We already feel guilty. Give us something that makes us feel better. We wanted to be positive. We wanted to be encouraging. We wanted to be short. We wanted to, and so on. And then you design a service and just start doing that. But they're never, ever going to be commanded to do something that they don't already want. They're going to be told human wisdom to make life more comfortable in this journey through life. Now, this was before Fuller. It goes all the way back to Norman Vincent Peale and liberalism from the East, East Coast liberalism in the early 20th century. And liberalism in that uh, iteration of it in the early 20th century said, we don't know anything about heaven and hell. We're not even sure there is a hell. But what we can do, this was a quote, is put springs on your buggy to give you a smoother journey through life. Now that goes all the way back before Schuller, before anybody, even before Fuller, to what liberalism was about, making a religion for the people to be comfortable in life and to be able to solve a few problems. If you want to see a contemporary version of it, if you watch Fox News in the morning, which I do, a guy from a local church comes on and does that. A guy from the Twin Cities buys ad time, he goes on and gives human wisdom at a very high price for some, for this time. He gives human wisdom, human wisdom, human wisdom every day. What's he doing? He's telling potential religious consumers that Christ will give you ways to solve problems you couldn't otherwise solve. He's trying to motivate people to be religious. But the gospel says that God gives life from the dead, that he converts the rebel, and that he's commanding people to repent. So there's a lot of false teaching that says repentance has no place in the gospel. I've got vicious emails from people telling me I'm an apostate and teaching works because I wrote an article defending the idea of repentance being proclaimed universally through the gospel. And they're saying that that's teaching salvation by works. Some of my, the most vicious emails I've gotten are from people who believe that. They say that faith merely is having assent to facts as laid out in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. No more than that. So mental assent to facts is saving faith, and you can't command repentance. But that's just a different air, the same air in a different version, different flavor. Because they're assuming if you command repentance, you're asking people to do a work. But in fact, it's pretty obvious in Luke X, the repentance for forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to all the nations in my name. That's what Jesus said. That's Great Commission. Well, you know what they say to that? That was just for the Jews. That was just for the Jews. Paul later got a different gospel that was only for the Gentiles that doesn't include repentance. But then, and I debated that and I wrote an article about it. Isn't air pernicious? It just keeps coming at us. And so... One of these guys that was so mean and nasty to me, I wrote him back and cited Acts 26, 18. Because they say, well, somewhere in Acts, Paul got it right. Because he was wrong earlier. Well, so then I cited Acts 26, 18, that, we, that Christ called people to turn from darkness to light to the kingdom of Satan of God and so on. And they want to obscure the fact that metanoia, repent, and turn, epistrepho, are synonymous. So, they don't, so they're, they're lying to people. They're abusing the church. And they call me 
a teacher of works. Because they don't believe that God will use miraculous power to convert people when you tell them to repent and believe the gospel. So now they got two gospels, one for the Jews and a different one for the Gentiles that's only mental sin. And they are so vicious. Literally, they think I'm going to hell because I'm preaching what Jesus himself called the Great Commission. So just so you realize, there's consequences to false doctrine. Eric, thank you. You've been telling us you can't do that. You can't say God won't command what we don't already have the ability to do. If you want to comment on how that relates to what you've been teaching us. Well, you know what's interesting, Bob, as I was listening to you, I'm thinking about how all of these wayward doctrines stem from not understanding what doctrine total depravity, the inability of man. And that's why I was explaining some weeks ago that if we don't get that right, it has consequences in the rest of theology. It all over the place. Almost every heresy stems from not understanding the inability of man. If you don't understand the inability of man, then you don't understand the miraculous nature of salvation. And if salvation isn't miraculous and it can be conjured up by man, then you have the seeker-sensitive movement. You have all these programs. We have to dim the light just right. We have to play the right music. We have to ask the right questions. We have to have the sofa in the right place if those are the conditions. Not understanding total depravity has consequences through all of theology. It does. It does. Well, then now the thing is they're saying, we can't even say that marriage is between a man and a woman because then that's going to offend people. Male and female, he created them. No, you can't say that. We got to be open to the other. But that's all assuming that God can't forgive anybody or change them. But he does and he can. And he will. And he promised to. Just preach the whole counsel of God and God will change people. And it's wrong to think that people just want to hear only what they already believe and be a Christian. Because I've talked to people who got delivered out of a lot of the things that the liberals are saying we've got to be open to. And they're thankful that they heard the truth and got delivered from what they used to be. Not told, sit here and be religious and don't expect God to change anything. I'm glad God changed me. I was as violent against the gospel as anybody up until the second I was converted, July 18th, 1971. And so God changes people. And so next week, we're going to talk about two things. The vanity of pagan worship. My, my uh, computer went... I, I'm going to have a different computer here, I promise you. This one is seen its last Sunday school. Uh, pagan worship is vain. Let me give you a preview and then we'll close in prayer. Verses 13 to 15. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. They wanted to sacrifice to the gods, which were Paul and Barnabas. Now, what would the modern preacher do? Take up an offering. Give on a mailing list. No, I'm just kidding here. All right. No, bad idea. Paul heard of it. Paul and Barnabas heard of it. They tore their robes, which was a Jewish sign of strong lament and protest. Excuse me. Rushed out, rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, "Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all in all that's in them." By the way. Turn is a synonym for repent. There it is. Oh, Paul didn't preach repentance, they tell us. What? Just read it. 
read, learn how to read, I say. It's wonderful when you just read. We'll start with this slide on a computer that will actually show it next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and goodness. Thank you for the power of the gospel that converts lost sinners. And we pray for boldness that we might speak your word without shame or embarrassment. And thank you for the mighty work you do in the lives of people as they hear and believe. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. God bless you, people.